Hello, my name's Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Slow. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today we're doing an episode on Roger Corman. I would like to begin with a story of me and Roger Corman. Go. So the year was 2009. I was an editorial intern at iWeekly. Rest in peace. <laughs> and uh, I interview, and I was to interview uh, one Mr. Roger Corman by phone. And here is a story that he told me. So I asked him. Uh, so what movies are you working on now and he said i have a film that i'm doing called dino croc versus super gator now originally it was supposed to be called dino croc 2 because dino croc had been a success with us for the sci-fi channel but when i said dino croc 2 they said no, movies with two in the title aren't don't do very well for us. So I said, oh, did I say Dino Croc 2? I meant Dino Croc versus Super Gator. So you can see that you can learn things even at my age. So That's my Roger Corman story. What does that say about Roger Corman? I guess it says that in 2009 he was making Dino Croc versus Super Gator. <laughs> and we're going to be talking about him principally, at least we're going to try before we run out of material, of him as a director. Because people usually, when they talk about him, they talk about him as a producer. He found all of New Hollywood. Boring. <laughs> what we're really going to get into are the films that he directed. And something that not a lot of people know about Roger Corman is that he was really passionate about film as a medium. There's a story that uh, I read in a book. I believe it's the autobiography, Roger Corman, the unauthorized one by Beverly Gray. That's right. Who was who, a former assistant for him at New World. That when she interviewed for the job, he was like, have you read uh, The Theory of Film by, um, I don't know, someone, Krauser? Krakauer? Uh, Krakauer, yeah. yes, that's right. One of us has been to school for film and the other one has <laughs> yeah. not. And he's like, you will want to read it after I hire you. And he never brought it up again after he hired her. I guess he wanted to show off that he was kind of an aesthete, right? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, Roger Corman, when he would hire assistants and stuff like that, he always made sure, even though he paid them garbage, <laughs> that they were the highest university students that he could get. Interesting. Um, that's an anecdote. I'm sure we'll go back into more of them. Sure. So yeah, Roger Corman was a director, most famously known for his Post Cycle. We're not talking about that today. It'll probably come up. We're talking about two films which we picked... I guess wrongly we picked them. <laughs> uh, Justin and I today watched two of Roger Corman's later efforts, uh, Gas, or It Became Necessary to Destroy the World in Order to Save It from 1960. 60-ish. Uh, <laughs> Late 1960s. This was his last film. Uh, 1970. From- 1970, okay, his last film from a long and fruitful association with American International Pictures. Mm -hmm. And then we watched uh, Roger Corman's Frankenstein Unbound. From 1990. His comeback film, his first film in close to 20 years, and his last film to date as a director. Yep. And And both of them were awful. They were not good. Terrible. So, and Gas made in 1970, he made another movie called Von Richter. Rick Toffin and Brown. Brown, which he kind of disowned. It's a World War One aerial uh, film, film, which he had a big problem with because uh, the studio redubbed all the voices to give them German accents. Mm-hmm. And after that, he has some uncredited directorial roles before coming back with Frankenstein Unbound. Mm-hmm. So when you think of Roger Corman, you don't think of him as a director, do you? You think of him as a I, producer. Well, I don't know. I probably think of him as a director. You know, Little Shop of Horrors, the Poe movies. Those are the things. The bucket of Blood. Leap. Yeah, those are the things kind of leap to mind. Uh, but as a producer... 
he has undeniably probably been more influential. So why pick Gas? I guess because it's the last film he made for AIP. And it's kind of the last of his string of uh, weird counterculture movies, uh, zeitgeist humping films such (laughs) as The Wild Angels about the Hells Angels, a movie that kind of paved the way for Easy Rider. And uh, The Trip, his his famous uh, attempt at reproducing an LSD trip on film. Which he famously took LSD and he went to the forest somewhere and he's written about this extensively. You know what? I've been reading about Roger Corman for most of my film going life and I'm I'm just about done with him, I think, at this point. Really? Yeah. I mean, You think you've heard every story there is to be heard? Well, this thing, you're telling me about this, this acid trip that he had, this famous acid trip. I've read and heard about this famous acid trip all my life and it's really not that interesting a story. And I'm <laughs> it is. Of... It's fairly anticlimactic. <laughs> he had acid once in his life and then he made a movie about it like who who gives a shit i don't know <laughs> uh sounds very cynical will won't you give roger maybe his roger mind? corman is a great man don't get me wrong yeah. i love him i have unconditional love for roger corman i'm just saying that i've heard all the stories and i'm tired of it so gas another movie that we were both tired of watching awful it's gonna be difficult to talk <laughs> about gas because there's not really any plot I guess Gats, Gas gets kind of released so Gas, in an animated sequence. So remember that Gas is from 1970. So it's kind of, uh, it's very much part of the, the hippie movement. Uh, very much catering to that audience. And it's der- inspired somewhat by the then famous catchphrase, don't trust anyone over 30. Mm-hmm. So in this movie, a gas is released that kills everybody over the age of 25. And a bunch of uh, cool, hippie, swinging uh, kids uh, uh, try to... Well, they don't try to rebuild society. They just kind of wander around for 90 minutes and then the movie ends. It's like, it's basically kind of like laughing or something. It's a bunch of <laughs> barely connected vignettes and Edgar Allan Poe is in it. And there's a character named Marshall McLuhan who appears to be a Hells Angels biker. It's actually quite a self-referential film now that I think of it. It's kind of his intervista. Intervista? Uh, yeah, like Fellini. Where, where, oh, I was going to say Stardust Memories? Where, yeah, or like that. It's a career-summing, uh, self-referential work. <laughs> he obviously does not think of himself very fondly. <laughs> the way that he wants to sum up his entire career. And the stars include uh, such future superstars as Harold and Maude's Bud Court. <laughs> yep. And Rocky's Talia Shire, here credited as Tally Coppola. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I feel like that's really all we have to say about that. Well, Gats. I mean, it was, it was really boring it was really not funny nope uh and it really did feel like a guy in his 40s uh trying to make a hip young movie for kids what's your feeling about roger corman as kind of like a political filmmaker or a thinker a political filmmaker roger corman is a real complicated figure where when he talks he's has a very liberal bias but the movies he makes are pretty conservative because they're engineered to make a dollar Mm -hmm. and that's was the bottom line for him was he needed to make that dollar and the money that he made was usually the most important thing for him so as a filmmaker if you don't know and i'm sure if you're listening to this stupid podcast you do know (laughs) uh he started at american international pictures Mm -hmm. famous drive-in and grindhouse studio making attack of the crab monsters and little shop of horrors and many many low budget five day wonders but i would say that probably my favorite roger corman films that he's directed are those five-day wonders oh yeah which are usually written by charles b griffith who had a very satirical bent like attack of the crab monsters is really funny in the way that it's structured and and there's obviously his his comedy trilogy of bucket of blood little shop of horrors 
creature from the haunted sea Mm -hmm. and i like those movies because there's kind of a repertory company quality Mm -hmm. to them where it'll be like dick miller beverly garland anthony carbone jonathan hayes this little stable of actors over and over again and the ones that are not famous i would really recommend because he did a bunch of like rock and roll movies (laughs) oh uh after that period he made one called rock and roll all night which is great and stars dick miller who almost stars in nothing and it's only an hour long Mm -hmm. it's probably floating around because Corman was famous for not wanting to pay any heed to copyright, that he never went through the measures that it took to copyright his work. So a lot of his films are usually floating around and kind of fuzzy bootlegs. Which became a problem for him when Little Shop of Horrors became a massive hit on Broadway. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think he was able to negotiate some sort of royalty deal with that. Yeah, man, he fought tooth and nail to get that Little Shop of Horrors money. But after those films, probably the most famous thing that he did was like The Poe Cycle, Mm -hmm. which was a bunch of films that he made with Vincent Price, once with Ray Milan. Oh, yeah. That ad- adapted Edgar Allan Poe stories very loosely. Yeah. <laughs> but they did them in a really... They, they captured the spirit. Yeah. Of... And it, they were really good scripts by people like Richard Matheson and Charles Beaumont. And cinematography by people like Nicholas Rogue. Mm-hmm. Uh... The Mask of Red Death being probably the most beautiful movie that uh, mm-hmm. Roger Corman ever shot. And somewhere in there was The Intruder. And The Intruder is, I would say, the best movie uh, that Roger Corman ever made. It's an adaptation of a novel, I believe, and it deals with racial tension in the South. And it stars William Shatner in as a villain. Kind of a demagogue. Yeah. A, and, a Trumpian figure, if you will. And I mean, it's very didactic in the way that it's presented, but it's very inflammatory at the same time. Even if it has one of those kind of syrupy endings, that these kind of movies, yeah. you don't expect that stuff. Because, you know, it's supposed to end on a downer, but this one actually ends kind of happily. But it's a really good movie, and famously, he says it's one of the only movies that he lost money on. Because basically, it was the early 60s, uh, kind of of right at the beginning of the Civil Rights Movement, Mm -hmm. uh, and kind of none of the Southern theaters would play it. And I think he shot in the South, too, and that was a big point of contention. It has a very nice Southern atmosphere to it. Mm -hmm. And after making that movie, it's kind of like he washed his hands of trying to make things that were not immediately commercial. But then in in the documentary Corman's World, he talks about the idea that uh, he still wanted to put his liberal politics in movies, but to kind of... You know, kind of masks them yeah, in genre or, elements. Yeah, put put in a, in a saleable package. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you could argue if he succeeded in it's doing that. It's hard to tell how disingenuous some of those later ones are, like the Wild Angels. It feels like they're there to make a buck, but there's still an art artistry to what Corman does, even though people like Joe Dante, who worked for Corman as a trailer editor and went on to make Piranha for him, it has gone on record saying that like Roger Corman is an okay director, mm-hmm. but he's not a great director. Would you uh, agree with that? I would definitely agree with that. You know, last night I watched the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Yeah, which is Corman's only uh, big studio film, which he made for 20th, 20th Century, Century Fox. Fox. And it is boring as hell. It, I, I feel kind of like... I feel like a lot of what's interesting about his movies as a director is the fact that because they were exploitation movies and they were hopping onto whatever the zeitgeist was at the time, they have a sort of time capsule element to them. Mm-hmm. At a big studio, the the whole point of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre was he wanted to do the most realistic, fact-based version of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre and the Capone uh, mm-hmm. conflict. And the result is this incredibly boring movie. It's like Torah, Torah, Torah or something. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's just, just this this dull procedural. And I feel like had he been able to sustain a career at the studios, probably the best you could have hoped for was that he'd be kind of like a Clint Eastwood journeyman. Mm-hmm. 
I or mean, even like a William Castle back when yeah. he worked for the studios where yeah. his work is very, you know, mechanical and it does what it has to do, but not in a way that would be memorable or people would return to. Yeah. St. Valentine's Day Massacre is just like a bunch of people, a bunch of gray men sitting in in offices talking. <laughs> so you think that when he was working on those low budget pictures like Attack of the Crab Monsters, War of the Satellites, because he has something to prove and he needs to go out there and make money, it's more interesting then. Yeah, and also mm-hmm. the, something like Attack of the Crab Monsters is fun just because it's, you know, a five-day movie. and mm-hmm. It's goofy. <laughs> and and... It's goofy and everyone seems to be having fun. Yeah, where something like Gas, while we were watching it, I was like, well, do you think anybody had fun making this movie? Gas, I think, one thing that's sort of interesting about Gas is that it feels almost as if Roger Corman was believing his hype at the time. Because around that time, he'd done The Wild Angels and The Trip, which were big successes in the Mm -hmm. drive-in market and really kind of captured the youth audience. There's a sense of him being like, oh, well, I'm the poet of the youth audience now. I'm the filmmaker who really gets the hippie generation. And he feels that the studio took the film away from him and kind of destroyed it. And that's one of the reasons he didn't want to work for it. There is no possible way that the footage that I saw could ever be assembled into anything good. You don't think it's a situation like, I'm trying to think of a movie. All that comes to mind is Bonfire of the Vanities. Like, and that movie's terrible. Or, so. or the Magnificent Ambersons. Yeah, or, exactly. Like, there's missing that final reel that no, would make but, it really good. Magnificent Ambersons at least has everything that's in it is good. <laughs> yeah. And there's nothing good in yeah. gas. There's a reason it's been forgotten and like shoved away on a double disc set with the trip. Yeah. It's not even a double disc set. It's a flipper disc. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how much respect they have for it. So, what do you think of Roger Corman as a director? Would you agree with that? I, what I said. I think he's good. I, I think I would give him better than okay because mm-hmm. he's not someone like um, I'm trying to think of directors that are not very good. Uh, I don't want to name any names if they're still alive and they listen to this podcast. But he brings a kind of flair to what he's doing. Mm-hmm. It seems like he cares about what he's doing. The Trip is an interesting movie. It's it's kind of an attempt to do an avant-garde movie as an exploitation movie. And Mask of Red Death is probably, it's very artistic. But I don't know how much that comes from Nicholas Rogue versus Roger Corman. Well, certainly Roger Corman as a director at least knew to hire Nicholas Rogue mm-hmm. and created the conditions around which he could do something like that. Yeah, and so I think that he's an interesting director. I don't think he's great. I don't think any Anybody would argue that. Um, I think The Intruder is a great film, even though he's just a good director. But the two movies we watched today did not fill me with any kind of... Um, so what? how did you like Frankenstein Unbound? Oh, it was awful. It was so, so boring. What is Frankenstein Unbound about? I have no idea. Okay, I'll tell you. Uh, John Hurt plays a scientist from 2031 AD... Uh, in a city called New Los Angeles, who somehow ruptures space and time. Making a laser that he calls his monster that's supposed to be a parallel with anyway, Victor Frankenstein. He finds he suddenly finds himself back in England. <laughs> yes. That's where they were. <laughs> yeah. That's where Mary Shelley's from, England. Uh, How did he find himself in England? Because later on, when he travels forward in time, they stay in the same place. Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. We're going to have to take it up with screenwriter FX Feeney to answer <laughs> all those questions. So he finds himself. Uh, in Mary Shelley's time and uh, Percy Shelley and Byron. No, Byron. Byron, yeah. sorry. Um, and he kind of gets involved with Victor Frankenstein. Oh, and Victor Frankenstein is a real person in this universe and he's actually created the monster. It kind of starts in media res in mm-hmm. the Frankenstein story. The monster's already been created and mm-hmm. he, he's living in the woods somewhere and <laughs> Just hanging out. Victor Frankenstein, Victor Frankenstein played by the great Roll Julia, yep. o- overdrawn at the memory bank Street himself. Fighter. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, doppled his way into this movie as Victor Frankenstein and Bridget Fonda is Mary Shelley Jason Patrick is Byron and John Hurt of course is the, 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 the and who jo- does nothing and, and has John Hurt no is, John Hurt is 
apparently utterly indifferent to having been transported back in time. <laughs> he does not care. He just sort of wanders around and is like, oh, isn't this interesting? And he has a car that talks to him. Yeah, and he makes no effort to really get back. He makes no effort to hide the car. He just drives around and everyone is amazed by it. He... Alright, before we get more in the, into the plot summary, if people haven't already guessed, this movie is not good. No, it's really bad. It's like bafflingly bad. It has no energy. It looks very chintzy. Yeah. Uh, even though supposedly it was a studio picture, wasn't it? It wasn't released by... 20th New Century C- Fox. Ugh, that's insane. It, it almost feels like Corman maybe cut some corners when he was working on it. Because he famously had a budget of $2.5 for the St. Valentine's Massacre. And he was like, oh, I only spent $500,000 and I made the movie anyway. Which is supposedly one of the reasons he got fired from his next film that he made for 20th Century Fox. Because he was cutting corners with things like, oh, why do we need three generators? We'll just have one gener- generator. <laughs> we'll make sure that it works. And if it breaks down, we'll deal with it. The Beverly Gray book has... Uh, information that if he would get a first class ticket on an airplane to go to a film festival or something he would cash it in and and trade it for a coach ticket yeah so at that point of his career and we'll get back to frankenstein unbound is roger corman as a person seems we don't need to get back to frankenstein (laughs) fuck that movie (laughs) it is not hey when you were watching you're like i have many things to talk about about (laughs) i thought i did but i feel i feel like now now that it's like I, it's out in the open. You know what? I'm reminded of that scene in Giant when Rock Hudson gets James Bean in the back of the room and he's about to punch him. He says, you're not even worth hitting. <laughs> and he walks off. That's, just, that's how If I anybody feel. wonders, Will Sloan just watched uh, I saw it George Stevens' Giant. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, there's... There's nothing really to talk about, Frank. It's just bad. And it's bad in a baffling way where you're like, what did he think he was giving to his audience? Well, apparently what happened with this movie was 20th Century Fox came to him and said that we have market research showing that Roger Corman's Frankenstein would be a successful name for a movie. And apparently they kept offering him more and more money to the point where they offered him a lot of money. And he said, and he wanted to do something that he thought was an interesting take on the Frankenstein story. So he picked this book with this ridiculous time travel bullshit. (laughs) and like the final result is almost devoid of any kind of exploitation elements it feels like a sci-fi channel original or a a lesser master of horror episode (laughs) (laughs) i mean frankenstein looks super shitty oh terrible nothing happens in the movie there's weird moments of gore that seem definitely like Um, wait wait i think you mean that frankenstein's monster looks (laughs) shitty uh Uh, frankenstein is the creator as i said during the movie frankenstein the creator created a body and brought it back to life making that body his son no hence, no no it's his creation so you could give your creation your last name Listen, it, hence frankenstein if i if i if, when god gave life to adam and eve if i create a teddy bear if i sew a teddy bear it doesn't become my son it becomes this teddy if bear. if it comes to life it does no, it does, no. <laughs> yeah have you ever brought something to life uh not yet <laughs> knockwood <laughs> <laughs> Wait, do you want to bring something to life? No, not, not no, not to... yet. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> as far as you know, this is a special podcast. We have some news for Will Sloan. Oh, my <laughs> the God. The door is opening. And... Oh. But yeah, so that's my logic of why you call it Frank. And you know what? People who are so, like, obsessed with that kind of... You know what? <laughs> Language evolves, right? So, oh, like, Frankenstein is Frankenstein's monster. Don't give me that. You... So, when the... Ox... When the di- I'm sorry. It's the modern Prometheus. Isn't what? that what it's supposed to be called? When the dictionary changed the word literally recently, where literally can mean figuratively, 
Did, were you okay with that? I didn't see that, so... Uh, sure, whatever. God. Are, are you sitting there with your arms crossed being like... I am. Then who is the authority if it's not the dictionary? Like, I'm assuming that's the Oxford well, Dictionary. Well, you know what? It's going to be me. That's who the authority is going to be. <laughs> At the end of the grammar road, you'll be there with the whip It seems like I'm playing God, which means I did not learn the lesson of <laughs> Roger <laughs> Corman's Frankenstein Unbound. <laughs> and for people wondering, you know, maybe there's some people out there who are kind of interested in that plot synopsis. Like, li- nothing oh, happens. by all means, watch it. <laughs> no, <don't. laughs> It ends with... Frankenstein's monster and John Hurt, like in the cheapest future sci-fi set, was like lasers playing over them. Yeah, it looked it looked like the Riddler's lair in Batman Forever. <laughs> so Will Schwung got very excited. Oh yeah, Batman Forever love. Yeah, started um, singing "Kissed by a Rose." <laughs> so Frankenstein about not good. Roger Corman never directed anything after. Um, and even though you mentioned that he almost directed an episode of Masters uh, of Horror. Yeah. Which probably would not have been very good. I mean, most of the episodes of Masters of Horror are just lukewarm anyway. That's so. right. Uh, I mean, maybe Roger Corman is a guy, depending on the script, his films are good. Because when Chuck uh, Griffith was writing for him, those movies were great. Yeah, I think so. He's a very good, he's a solid journeyman director. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as a producer, I think, you know, I think the things that we love about Roger Corman are the funny stories of him being cheap on sets of movies and saving money and uh, but to cutting what corners. End? Well, but- and that's why I think he's a good producer yeah. or a better producer is because that's where his talent is. Of just cutting corners? And- cutting corners and, and budgeting things and finding the right talent. But like at what point did Roger Corman like look at himself in the mirror and have to go like, I don't need to do this anymore. I, That's never happened. It feels he's still making Super Croc versus Dino Gator. I think, yeah, I think um, I don't know. You get to the point in your life when you're still alive and you still want to contribute. <laughs> but by and, cutting and corners, it's all, and it's all it's all he knows, right? Yeah, I do think it's a bit of a shame that at some point, you know, I love all those movies he did in the seventies at new at at. Uh, New World Pictures, like, yeah, you know, Death Race two thousand, Piranha, Piranha, a lot of classic stuff in there that he produced. It's it's a bit of a shame that he didn't graduate to making better movies after that, because in the eighties he sold New World and started Concord News New Horizons mm-hmm. at around the time when exploitation movies stopped getting a theatrical release and yeah. where everything went direct to video. But he kind of yeah he kind of went downwards because he went to the VHS market. Didn't well, he? basically, uh, when Jaws and Star Wars came out. I, it's like such the it's almost a cliche to say this at this point but big studios figured out how to do exploitation movies better than the exploitation filmmakers mm-hmm. did so at that point it kind of rendered roger corman irrelevant so a lot of a lot of kind of direct video garbage you know well he actually tried to expand when that happened though because he bought a studio in ireland ireland yeah which was supposedly incredibly shitty not <laughs> soundproof not even waterproof interesting and he made films like battle beyond the stars so he's trying to compete in a very I don't know, odd. It's it's one of those weird things that uh, uh, production companies seem to do, like Canon Films is the same thing, mm-hmm. is that they have a product, it's working, but they keep trying to build themselves up bigger without wanting to give the kind of money those bigger products need, like Canon Films making Superman 4, uh-huh. and it's the chintziest version of Superman you could ever get. And Roger Corman kept trying to do that, and at a certain point you reach a ceiling where there's nowhere else to go except to make shitty product. Did you hear the story about Carnosaur? Carnosaur was the, the Jurassic Park ripoff that he was able to push into theaters, I think, two weeks before Jurassic Park came out, and he got, instead of, he got Diane Ladd, Laura Dern's mother, to be the star of it. But that he wanted to have a dinosaur in Carnosaur that was taller than Spielberg's T-Rex. And 
Somebody pointed out that biggest ceiling height in their studio was a foot shorter than Spielberg's T-Rex, so they couldn't have one that was bigger. <laughs> really? really? Yeah. And that stopped him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you hear the other funny story of how Carnosaur came to be and why? Because it's based on the novel Carnosaur. Right. Is that when Jurassic Park was coming out, um, Roger Corman went and looked for books about dinosaurs that have dinosaurish titles, <laughs> found Carnosaur, did not read it, bought the rights to it, <laughs> and s- bought it so that when they released it in the vicinity of Jurassic Park and people were like, hey, you're ripping off Jurassic Park, he'd go, no, I'm just adapting this novel. And that's a kind of art yeah, that's smart. <laughs> that a specific person needs. But I just wish he used that talent to like make good movies. Yeah, because I don't think he's done anything good in 30 years. 30 years, that would make it... 80, 86. Yeah, definitely not. I mean, once you get into his later like, name period... name one. <laughs> uh, you get into the Jim Wynorski years. Yeah, And that's a pretty sucks. rough shit. <laughs> Jim Wynorski, terrible filmmaker. What? Chopping Mall's good. Death, Death Stalker, too. Yeah, fine. If, if Jim Wynorski might have two fun movies out of 100. <laughs> oh, he's probably made way more than 100. I, there's like five I, wit, I, uh, witches of Brestwick. By the way, there's a great documentary about Jim Wynorski, Papatopoulos. Uh, I love that documentary. Yeah, it's so good. If people, I think it was on Netflix for a long yeah. time, so I don't know if it's still out there. Go check it out, Papatopoulos. All about Jim Wynorski make, behind the scenes of the witches of Brestwick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and how he shot it in three days? Yeah. Something like that, maybe five days. Yeah. Um, but I think that it's that kind of like diminishing returns that kind of tanked Corman. Like at a certain point, you can only make films cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And it's, I, I just don't understand the logic that he went through. I, I think Beverly Gray talks about how he would get really enthused by a problem and how to solve it. Because, like, they made um, the movie, I think it was Big Bad Mama 2. It's a Jim Wynorski film. and Or maybe Bloody Mama 2, one of those ones. With Angie Dickinson? Yeah, and yeah. it was part, it was like a big production that cost so much money that Corman was like, how can we have a return on these, uh, on this production? Oh, I'm going to shoot a movie using the set when they're not shooting on it and they made a film called i think it's daddy's girls or daddy's boys which was originally directed by the screenwriter of after hours and vampires kiss Mm. then he got fired and corman himself had to come in and kind of finish it off for him and those are the problems that corman likes solving but at a certain point like you don't need to solve those problems anymore or his famous puerto rico trilogy from 1960 where because new new screen actors guild union regulations were going to kick in i think in the 60s or well maybe it wasn't the screen actors guild some union thing was going to happen in the 60s so he hightailed it to puerto rico to make some movies where the rules wouldn't apply so he made one movie and then while he was there he was like hey robert town write a script for another movie and and also could you act in this other movie and that became the last woman on earth and not a good were, movie not a good movie and then they were like well hey while we're here why don't we just make one more movie too <laughs> and so they made creature from the haunted sea and that's a kind of the story and the way of making films is really that's fun to me yeah that's like and i think that if those movies are good at all and that's very debatable. they are fun to watch they are though. fun to watch I mean, Creature from the Haunted Sea is pretty rough. <laughs> I, I get a kick out of Creature from the Haunted Sea. Uh, especially the monster, which, you know what the name of the special effects guy who made that? It's like Paul Bleichdale or something like that, who made a bunch of Corman creatures yeah. and they all look like shit. That monster may be the worst monster <laughs> in any movie. It's like movie. ping pong eyes mm-hmm. and like seaweed. There's also, there's a scene in that movie where Anthony Carbone is on the phone and a tree branch just falls in his face and then he's just like, he just like <laughs> takes it out of his face and like rolls his eyes and then keeps talking. And the whole thing still in the movie <laughs> you think that was a mistake it, was I, it had to have been a mistake 
<laughs> I mean, but that's that kind of, you know, go get him attitude that makes those films fun. Well, if you look at the 90s, I said Corman kind of doubled down on the kind of movies he made. It's like, you know, um, sex and violence to the point that it just diminishes the prod- product that he's making. There's an interesting documentary from the 90s called Some Nudity Required about a woman. It was directed by a woman who worked at Concord New Horizons, kind of taking a very critical view of the the sexy thrillers that he was making at the time worth checking out and it's weird to say that like oh i wish corman had gone on and made like better movies than he made when he made like almost 50 films i mean listen we say i think we're saying this out of a place of love because yes. roger corman's made lots of movies that we both love yep oh, and I roger corman you know he's a legend yeah he is a legend if, i'm not denying if he that. was here right now i would i would shake his hand and say i'm a fan of you <laughs> wow that uh conservatively i think i said something similar to him when i spoke to him back really? in the day where you're like i'm a big fan i think i did like, say that and i and that's very true i mean i'm a big fan too whether it's the movies that he directed or the movies that he produced or or just the whole thing the thing the like roger, the Corman. Mythic roger yeah. Corman like what's gonna happen like the day that he passes on i'll be sad it, i think a lot of people are gonna be sad and i love gonna... having him around <laughs> i like know, that he's still out there doing those movies even though i don't like watching them is he like i don't think he hasn't made one in a long time yeah. i mean there's nothing sadder than in that corman world documentary in the final part you see him helping edit like dino croc versus super gator one of the, I, I watched a bunch of those movies when i was reviewing them and there's one that he actually acts in wait which one's that oh god it, it's either like it's like piranosaurus or super gator or like they all blur together in my mind but he actually plays a scientist in one of them worst actor ever he's he's appalling well he's appeared in a lot of funny little cameos he's in the howling in a joke where he's going in the quarter slot for the telephone looking for change yeah he's in godfather part two (laughs) Two, that's right that's i'm not in godfather two that's a that's a pretty good role wait are you comparing yourself directly to (laughs) i'm just saying that like even if the one thing you had done in your life was be in godfather two that's pretty good well i think uh, roger corman as we said is kind of a mythic figure there's no one really like him Mm mm-hmm Especially people who directed. Supposedly he was a critic before he became a director, too. Mm. And then he produced a bunch of films. Like, he did it all. He had an engineering background, too. That's right. That's what he studied at school. Which is one of the reasons that he liked figuring out the problems that arose Mm. when films came through. And I think that may also be a bit of a sense of why I get the sense that he's not not really much of an actor's director. Mm. Uh, The people who work with him sort of say that he leaves them to their own devices. (laughs) Real Woody Allen, if we may. (laughs) Well... (laughs) If only Woody Allen had been under Roger Corman's wing, what kind of movies would we have gotten? I Well, you know, What's Up, Tiger Lily was an American international Was it? Picture. I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah. No, oh, but Woody Allen supposedly hated working on that picture. Yeah. Anyway, we'll save the Woody Allen talk for another day. Can you separate the artist from the art? <laughs> that is the true question. I mean, what if Roger Corman, and I mean, if you read any of his biographies, especially that Beverly Gray one, he comes off as... A pretty tough guy was like kind of cold yeah Yeah. mood swings sometimes he would be very generous with people but at the other he could just turn around and like swing it around on someone but he's a businessman you know i think he's kind of cold and unforgiving in that businessman's way that you have to be if you want to make it on top Mm -hmm. and i mean if anyone's made it on top it's roger corman ron howard tells a funny story in a lot of in a lot of interviews about corman where he says that he needed a big crowd scene for the last for the last scene of grand theft auto uh, for the big demolition derby and he only got 25 extras and he said to roger corman i need another 100 extras to make this work and corman said well you've done a very good job on this picture you're gonna have to use the 25 <laughs> but if you keep doing a good job you'll never have to make another picture for me again and ron Howard goes and i never did <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um and i mean that's corman right like 
when reading about him, he almost seems proud that when people make a movie good enough that they don't have to work for him anymore and they can go on to something else. It's kind of bittersweet. Yeah, a little bit. Peter Bogdanovich, though, came back and worked for him again. St. Jack is a new world picture. Yeah, that's right. After Peter Bogdanovich had the big bomb. With, for people who don't know, oh man, this is some old dusty anecdotes. Yeah. Peter Bogdanovich helped Corman on The Wild Angels. He helped out a bunch of pictures and he helped Corman make the uh, Targets which is technically Peter Bogdanovich's first directorial effort. Yeah. Yeah. And which is a fantastic movie. Mm-hmm. Went on his way and then made uh, Long Last Love. And then came right back down. Yep. Boom. Until Corman gave him another shot. Made you see, Jack. this is the stuff I'm tired of with Corman. These 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 worn out old, old stories. <laughs> but you know what? Maybe someone listening to this podcast, I tried to talk as quickly as I could. <laughs> <laughs> is that maybe they haven't heard that one. Because we can only discuss, Will. We cannot discover, <laughs> yeah. un- unless Roger Corman is right here. Like, like a- a- Alexander wept, for he had no <laughs> worlds left to conquer. Um, so if someone were to watch a directorial effort by Roger Corman, which ones would you recommend? I think I would recommend, just off the top of my head, one of the Poe ones, mm-hmm. like maybe Pit in the Pendulum, or yeah, Mas- that's a good one. Mask of Red Death, or mm-hmm. Tomb of Lygia. One of those three. I think I would also direct their attention to A Bucket of Blood. Mm-hmm. Which it usually gets overshadowed by Little Shop of Horrors. I think A Bucket of Blood is better than Little Shop. I think so. And Little Shop of Horrors is sort of interesting because it was shot in two days. Yes. But I feel like Bucket of Blood has a little bit more of a, I mean, in its feeble way, has a bit of more, a bit of a satiric edge to it. Oh, well, I mean. About, I, about beatnik no, coffee yeah, culture. I, I would agree with it you. It actually is a very nice evocation of the beatnik era. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, all the movies that Will just mentioned, and like I said, uh, Rock and Roll All Night. It's a great movie, which the funny anecdote that actually brought me to that one was that back when they were doing the, um, it was a series that happened on Showtime, I believe, where a bunch of famous directors remade AIP uh, rock movies. So like John Milius did one, uh, Rob Rodriguez made Road Racers, which was Larry Clark did Teenage Caveman. That's right. And it had all Oh, that's a different one. That's a different one. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, And I was going to say that Quentin Tarantino was supposed to remake Rock and Roll All Night. Oh, it's too bad you didn't. That would have been interesting Mm -hmm. um, because he would have had to do it on a TV schedule. But like, yeah, that's an interesting point. I forgot about that, that there was a series of movies that they remade the AIP pictures, not specifically Corman ones, though. Where there was like how to make yeah. a monster, uh, teenage caveman. Teenage caveman. The Larry Clark one is great because it has all the Larry Clark teen sex that's normally in all of his movies. <laughs> yep, and it still has that terrible teenage caveman twist. Yeah. I believe where they're like, is it? It's not Earth all along, or they're from the future, or something th- like that. I think, yeah, something like that. <laughs> it's been a long time. I mean, and you know, Corman's filmography. There's usually something always interesting in all of his movies, even if they're not all worth watching, like Gas. And Frankenstein Unbound. You don't have to watch those movies because they're not good. I guess t- Gas is an interesting time capsule. Ah, uh, no, it's not. What am I saying? <laughs> <laughs> don't watch it. Why watch that when you can watch a trip, which has the same yeah. thing more interesting? Or you could watch literally any other movie from the history of cinema. <laughs> <laughs> when Will was watching it, he was like, I don't think I've ever seen a worse movie than this. <laughs> and I was like, no, that can't be true, Will. And I think you went... It's, this may not be the worst movie I've ever watched, but I've never felt more unpleasant watching one. <laughs> I don't think I'd ever disliked a movie more. Yeah, disliked a movie more. And on those words, we have to say that Roger Corman is awesome. I love and him. we love him. He's a good man. I wish he was here right now. <laughs> Me too. Maybe in a future episode. Roger, can... if you're listening, please write in. <laughs> and the email is importantcinemaclubpodcast <laughs> at gmail.com. I forget we have an email. Yeah, importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail. Maybe you forget because we've never received a message. Uh, we don't need a message. This is just... <laughs> This is all about us. It's all about us. We're really in a kind of, you know, 
symbiotic relationship. <laughs> symbiotic relationship. <laughs> no. On that note, my name is Justin the Clue. My name is Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Is there any movies playing this week? Uh, no. Like uh, Alvin and the Chipmunks. Chip. Chip. <laughs> chip. chip uh, <clears throat> that's Alvin and the Chipmunks Part Two. It's the Road Chip <laughs> Part Three. Oh. The road chip might be the new one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I can't keep those straight.